Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast in our second part on evolution and creation. My name is Brian. Along with me is Jeff. Jeff, how's it going this morning? It's it's going well. Yeah, we're kind of in the middle of, of this discussion with you know part one, part two, and it's in my own mind, my own opinion. It's very fascinating. It can be very confusing too, uh, and so I hope our listeners are at least have their interest uh, perked, if you will. Uh, some of the things we're saying, and would encourage them to uh, you know go to our website. Uh, which will give some uh, references, I think, at the end of our podcast for lots more uh, information that they can actually dig in to, uh, into this fascinating subject about where everything came from. Yeah, yeah, kind of one of those universal questions that all of us ask. And as you touched on in the first episode, you put together a nice study series called Christian Evidences. And if I remember correctly, you originally put this together for a class you were teaching. It's kind of the basis for a lot of what we're talking about. And as we said in that episode also, you know, our goal here is not to try and, you know, lose people's interest because we're going through so many technical details. What we really want to do, as you just pointed out, is kind of spark interest, talk about some of these theories of men at a high level, and then, of course, compare it to God's Word. I mean, ultimately, what does God's Word say? What does man say? You know, can they both be right? I guess we're going to be talking about first, you know, evidence for other forms of evolution. Right. Macro evolution, you know, molecules to man kind of evolution. This is, this is a big bang that is, you know, you know, the dominant uh, explanation for the origin of, you know, the universe, uh, basically the quote unquote big bang theory uh, basically uh, said that sand energy in the entire universe suddenly appeared as a very small, exceedingly dense event. And I struggle with using the right terms. Um, but that this sudden appearance then started expanding very rapidly, uh, hence the, the Big Bang, you know, roughly 14 billion years ago. Uh, and that after that point, you know, all the matter in the universe, all the energy in the universe, all the stars, all of the galaxies, etc kind of evolved, if you will, from this original origin out of nothing. Now, a couple points we'll make quickly. Uh, one is you can go to the internet. What, what, what's interesting, I think, is yes, Big Bang is the dominant uh, explanation. And some might have you to believe it's the only explanation. And some might have you believe that, well, all scientists believe in the Big Bang. Well, problem is not all scientists do and we're not we're not talking about you know religion kind of people we're talking about scientists uh, in fact uh, this is one of the interesting aspects of science in some ways being also a faith-based system i mean we certainly understand bible and christianity as being somewhat faith-based but there's a certain amount of faith based to science as well like science has all the answers or you know science is searching for you know all the uh, you know the natural explanations of things and we have confidence in science and science has proclaimed and all the scientists agree etc and all those are kind of faith-based statements especially if they involve ancient events that you can't bring into a lab that you currently can't certainly 
cannot bring into a lab, cannot experiment with, cannot prove or disprove, you know, in the lab by recreating, you know, the conditions. A lot of this is historical uh, with a lot of assumptions being made. But the key point being, at least with the Big Bang, if you go to the internet and type in a simple term like problems with the Big Bang theory, instance, you will find surprisingly many websites and not just creationist websites but actual scientific websites that will list a number of problems with the big bang theory uh, in fact i think there was one website that had like 20 or 30 problems that the big bang theory just cannot explain certain observable things which often emphasizes why people keep calling it a theory agree jeff it's so nice to when it's scientific, right? And not just a creationist website as you might expect. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that we were in the first episode, I just kind of mentioned, you know, can we get organization from chaos? And without going into what all these websites say, uh, to me, that's just a central question. Do we see that anywhere else in life, right? You get something organized that comes out of something that is chaos, which is what the Big Bang would cause, right? Chaos. Right. Well, and, and you raise a good point. And I've heard the analogy made that, you know, if, if, I, if we were to go into, you know, a junkyard, right, with automobiles, and, you know, we're going to lob in a, you know, some explosion, you know, we're going to lob in a nuclear weapon, you know, whatever the case may be, and that out of that resulting total chaos and all that energy and all the interactions that's going on, I'm going to produce an airplane. I mean, you just look at me and go, Jeff. <laughs> you know that's impossible, kind of, right? <laughs> what kind of drugs are you on? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, totally impossible. Uh, and yet that's what's being offered. The, the, first of all, out of nothing, you know, in the beginning, nothing, <laughs> to, to borrow a, a Genesis 1-1. And then there was something. And then everything flew apart. You know, logically, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't make sense. But I think more importantly, Two, two quick points. One is even scientists are recognizing, yes, the universe is currently expanding. Okay, undeniable. Okay, fine. And yeah, if you if you try to mentally wind the clock backwards, well, things would have been you know smaller, more dense in the past. But if you keep going mentally, you get back to this point where you know everything everything in the entire universe is, is packed into something the size of an atom. It's like, no, wait a minute, and that's just started not to make any sense. And the scientists, in some cases, are saying, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Another key point I'll make real briefly is, yes, indeed, we observe this universe is expanding. Is that consistent with the biblical model of creation? And the answer certainly seems to be yes. In fact, there's some very interesting mentions throughout the scriptures of the heavens being stretched which is a fascinating reference. You can read about that in Psalms 104, verse 2, about God stretching out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 42, verse 5, God who created the heavens and stretched them out. Isaiah 44, 24, God, you know, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. Jeremiah 10, 12. Uh, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Very fascinating references. Certainly would be consistent with, you know, an expanding universe. But as you said, Brian, I think in some ways it boils down to how much faith 
generally speaking, does it take to accept an explanation that all matter, energy, organization, galaxies, life on Earth, etc., came from nothing? To me, that takes a lot of faith. <laughs> yeah, I'd say more faith than probably. What hey, you would, mean. And that, and I like that point because it's like we're, it's almost like we're in a courtroom, and you have you know two different people coming before the the jury, and they're both presenting evidence, and they're asking us to believe, you know, this evidence supports one model, this evidence supports a different model, um, and. Almost like uh, you know, which does indeed require more faith. And some people, when you actually dig into it, like we're we're trying to do here, it's like, yeah, it takes more faith to believe in some of these alleged quote unquote scientific things than it does in you know the supernatural. So that's kind of like you know Big Bang origin of the universe uh, and such. Brian, anything else you want to add there before we talk about some of the other uh, evolution? I don't, let's take a look at those as well. Some other interesting ones. So there's a couple other things, you know, from an evolution perspective that are, are sometimes offered. And you might read in like, uh, you know, school textbooks that, you know, here's additional evidence, you know, for evolution. You know, for instance, you know, some people will say, well, if you just simply look at the different organisms like mankind or apes and chimpanzees or, you know, various other uh, organisms. They look similar. Um, and that's certainly true. And so what they would claim is, okay, so we have the evidence, similarity, similarity in overall life form, similarity in terms of internal organs, et cetera. And through this comparative anatomy, you know, that is undeniable. Okay, uh, The conclusion from which they would say we draw from that is, okay, they must have had a common ancestor. To which we would go, uh, well, maybe, but isn't that also consistent with having a common creator? The answer is, well, yeah. So by virtue of the fact that things are, are similar doesn't really help you one way or the other. You know, common ancestor, common creator, eh, it doesn't really help. Uh, another a thing which I think has been mostly discredited, uh, offered as evidence for evolution, is something called uh, comparative embryology, um, which, generally speaking, is if you look at an embryo, you know, like a uh, chicken or a fish or, or, or human, if you will, that the embryo, uh, uh, the, the fetus, if you will, goes uh, while it's still, you know, in the womb or within the egg or whatever. You know, goes through a number of transformations, which is fascinating in and of itself. How you can go, and this is another, I think, evidence for creation. You know, how you can go from a single cell that has all of the genetic material pre-coded to become two, become four, become eight, become 16, you know, multiplying and starting to differentiate and start to form different structures that are all working together. From the get-go and just unfolds itself into this magnificent bird <laughs> or or you know a chick that comes out of the egg or a human that comes out of the womb or, or whatever that's you know fully you know fully functional fully viable whatever from a single cell you know and having all that genetic material you know coded in that computer program so to speak you know that's mind-boggling in and of itself um 
but as it is ongoing, this transformational process, you know, in the egg or the womb or whatever, um, like with humans, there are some things that appear like earlier transitional evolutionary kind of forms, like this human embryo starts off with something that kind of looks like a tail or something that looks like slits in its neck that looks like gills. And so some people say, aha, aha, see, there you go. What it's doing as it is unfolding in the womb, for instance, is these are like echoes of its evolutionary past. You know, it started off as a single cell, ancient primordial ocean, and then later evolved into something that was like a fish kind of thing with gills and later evolved into something that had a tail and like, you know, uh, reptilian ancestors and mammal ancestors and eventually becomes more human-like and then is, is born. The, the interesting thing, if, if you really dig into it, that these alleged transitional structures within the fetus you know, quote unquote gill slits or its tail or like an egg yolk sac that some people claim uh, that these things allegedly left over from our ancient ancestors. Um, it's not that what allegedly looks like slits in the neck are not, you know, those are actual, the beginnings of organisms that are, you know, absorbed into the head, for instance, as the embryo uh, uh, unfolds. And that in and of itself, it, again, is, is fascinating how this fully form uh, this thing, I mean, Brian, it's, it, it, again, it boggles the mind. It's almost like if I were to take a, you know, some kind of a small mechanical, you know, microchip and set it down out in a field somewhere and punch the start button and a city is going to emerge from it. Like, what? <laughs> it just, again, it defies logic, doesn't it? It, it? Thank you. It defies logic. Uh, in fact, the, those quote unquote alleged gill slits turn into critical organs, like uh, again, within the head, the thymus gland, the parathyroid, the middle ear the canals, that what is quote unquote the tail is really part of the spine, etc. The other thing in this area that, that I'll mention is uh, in earlier decades, you know, scientists would say, hey, look at all of these quote unquote vestigial organs, basically organs that have no purpose. You know, they used to have a purpose and in evolutionary history, you know, their purpose kind of, you know, died out, went away. And now we've got this little residual leftover thing. Uh, appendix is, is a, uh, probably a good example of that. But over time, people found out, surprise, that these alleged, you know, vestigial leftover remains of millions of years of evolution, um, they do serve a purpose which is, you know, again, um, a way of saying, you know, here are some evidences, generally speaking, that evolutionists will offer in support of the theory. But as you dig deeper, you start seeing cracks in the argumentation and you can get to a point where you can say, no, no, that, that's, I can, I, I can see what you're pointing to as evidence to look at, but it doesn't fit your model. It doesn't fit. Yeah, and it's interesting to me how I, I feel like a lot of these come about because when theory one is disproven and we go to theory two and theory three and, you know, uh, it, at the end of the day, the complexity alone, I think, really shows that it just doesn't make sense to think that this could happen once again, 
over millions of years in the ways that they've described, right? And, in very small micro changes, each of which gives the organism some kind of evolutionary advantage that survival of the fittest can take over and start to, oh, that's a good thing. We'll, we'll keep, you know, those, or, those uh, descendants of that organism will, you know, thrive. It's like mm, small random changes. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to fit. No. So, Jeff, in our first podcast, you know, we were talking about different uh, reasons or different philosophies of men, if you will. And, and um, in addition to what you just covered, as far as, you know, these different uh, alternative meanings or thoughts uh, for, you know, evolution. We, we also have theistic evolution, right, which is, you know, we have people who profess to be Bible believers. Uh, so, hey, they believe in God. They believe in the Bible but they still believe in evolution. So they came up with this sort of hybrid model where they attempt to harmonize the Bible's account of you know, our origin with proven in their eyes, old earth and evolution. And, and so they combine it. And so I, I, you know, one of the easiest ways I think for people to understand what theistic evolution is, it's really God set everything in motion and he allowed evolution to sort of take its course. And so, well, is there evidence for that? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So. You know, there is this idea of what we call the day-age theory that's intertwined within theistic evolution. And so this is an effort to reconcile, you know, the literal Genesis account of creation with modern scientific theories on the age of the universe, the age of the earth and life and humans and so forth. And so this theory holds that the six days referred to in the Genesis account of creation are not ordinary 24-hour days, but rather are much longer periods of time thousands or, or millions of years. Um, we talked a little bit also in our last podcast about this idea of progressive creation. So in other words, sudden bursts of creation over long static time periods. And, you know, when you think about the religious belief that God created new forms of life gradually over a period of hundreds of millions of years, it really doesn't, it doesn't match up with what the Bible says and teaches. And we'll get more into that in just a minute. There's also something called the gap theory that's intertwined in this as well. And that, you know, is this, you have an ancient earth with a, you know, relatively recent, uh, you know, six day reconstruction that, you know, in their eyes suggests, if you look at Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, there's this gap in time. So, you know, if we look at Genesis one, one and two, it just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then verse two says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so, you know, there, once again, argument is that, yeah, we, we agree with that, but there was a tremendous amount of time that elapsed between verse one and verse two. So, you know, gap creationism really is, you know, a form of old earth creationism. Uh, that's expressing the belief that, you know, this creation period as described in the book of Genesis, once again, involved, you know, six literal 24-hour days, but there was a gap of time between the two distinct creations in the first and second verses of Genesis. So, you know, in their eyes, this theory explains many scientific observations, including the age of the earth. So, you know, they're, they're just saying, hey, both can be true here, right? So all of that, I think we would agree, conflicts with what we might call young earth creationism or, you know, the account of creation in the Bible. And so do we accept the Bible account of its origins 
some of these microevolutionary things that are real, but you know, rejection of old earth and molecules to man evolution. And so we have to look at theistic evolution and say, okay, here's all these theories. So what does the Bible say? Right. And when we think about, you know, the biblical references in Genesis chapter one being literal days or not, let's start with that. Is, is it literally 24 hour days in which God created all these things? Now, some might look at all that God did create. And if you look through Genesis 1, you'll see it, it just lists in detail. On this day, he did this. On this day, he did this. Could God create all that in a day? Well, I think it's pretty easy to say if he's a supreme being, it's yes. The answer would be yes, right? But more importantly, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, after verse 2, right, verses 3 through 5 say, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now here's the key phrase, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So if I told somebody, hey, we're going to do this in the morning, and then we're going to do this in the evening, or the evening and morning, I think we would all say, well, that's just one day, that's Tuesday, that's Saturday. We all understand that and accept that's a 24-hour period that's being referred to. And if you were to look at verses 8, and verses 13, and verses 19, and verse 23, in fact, if you look after every single day of creation, it always ends with the statement, so the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, third day, and so forth. Once again, just reading that, not putting any of your own thoughts in it, what do you think of? Well, that's a literal day, right? Why would it not be a literal day? Well, it goes beyond that. So for instance, if you look at Exodus chapter 20 in verse 11, it says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. So those of you that are familiar with the old law, the old covenant, there was the Sabbath day that as it says here, recognized and honored God for his creation and remembered that he rested on the seventh day. Now, once again, if you read that passage, what would make you think that wasn't literal days? Then you would have to say the Sabbath day should be, you know, recognized over millions of years, right? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, God even, we see some statements from him, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, verse 2. He, speaking of God, created them male and female and blessed them and called mankind in the day they were created. So does it say anything about man evolving? God created the apes and they eventually became humans? No. It's very clear. He created male and female. In fact, if you dig a little bit deeper into Genesis, you can see that woman was created from man. God took a rib from Adam. All very clear in the scriptures. Even Jesus under the new covenant, the, the New Testament said in Matthew 19 verses 4 and 5, from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Mark chapter 6 or Mark chapter 10 verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, it says, God made them male and female. So over and over, we have this, whether it's God saying it or Jesus saying it, making it very clear, God made man and woman as fully formed human beings in the beginning. 
And then one final passage here, Jeff, and then I'll let you give your thoughts on this section. And that is Hebrews chapter four, verses three and four. You know, God, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And he rested the seventh day, as we talked about earlier. And verse three says the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, if you finish something, would you allow it through evolution to continue evolving? No, that doesn't make sense, right? Finished, I think we all understand, means it's complete. Nothing else needs to be done. So anyhow, several points there, Jeff. I'll give you a chance to chime in if you'd like. Yeah, and as you said, good points. You know, I think what we're what, what you see are Christians, you know, and well-meaning at that, you know, when faced with allegedly overwhelming scientific evidence, and I say allegedly, that they go, well, you know, I'm not willing to renounce my faith. I'm not really willing to deny God. I still want to hold on to that. Um, but I'll go into the scriptures and I'll start reading into the scriptures something that arguably is not there in order to harmonize the Bible with what the scientists are saying. Uh, and as we've mentioned a lot in part one and even in the beginnings of part two, you don't necessarily need to do that because, you know, even within the scientific part of the equation, so to speak, there there's enough evidence that says the dominant theory about science and evolution, you know, from a, from a scientific perspective, uh, has problems you know as we said you know irreducible complexity and all that kind of stuff so you don't necessarily need to harmonize the bible with what alleged science says so there's that um the other thing is as you attempt to harmonize the bible with what science allegedly says is you start in essence denying what the bible says you start distorting it you start twisting it you have to start reading things in between the lines that aren't really there and you get to a position where you're in between the two models and you've got problems with both of the models. It's um, like being between a rock and a hard place, right? It is, well, it is. Because, you know, you basically, you have to come up with some unusual reading of the words like, you know, morning and evening is a day well that's not really morning and evening is a day that's really an allegory for millions of years or yet yeah, that, that yes and on a given day you know god did a certain creative act and then, then he stepped away for a billion years or several hundred million years and then came back for another day <laughs> and did some more tweaking etc uh, one of the interesting things that, that I did at one point, and it's kind of detailed, so I don't want to go into too much detail here, but it is on our uh, the classroom material that we keep referencing, is if you look at the evolutionary model, and if you look at the, if you will, the Genesis model, uh, they're very different, obviously, uh, and not only in time span, but also in the sequence of things. I mean, you know, for instance, evolution says, well, the, the stars were created first, then the sun was created, and then eventually the planet with its land mass, and then eventually the large primordial ocean, and then you have single-celled life, and then fish, and then the beginnings of land life with insects and reptiles, and then eventually mammals, primates, man. Okay. Uh, if you look at the Genesis account... Earth is first, light is second, then comes the oceans, 
then comes the land. And eventually you have land plants. And later you have fish. And so the sequence is different. So when a person tries to adopt this in-between thing that says, well, I'm going to rec reconcile what the Bible says with what science says, is you still have a problem because the Genesis account would still be out of sequence with what the alleged scientific model has. So you're right. You're definitely between a rock and a hard place or you're dealing with something that's neither fish nor fowl or you're trying to straddle the fence. And just doesn't work because you still have <laughs> problems and you don't need, and as we said you don't even need to straddle the fence and, you know you can stay on one side and explain you know the biblical account even from a scientific perspective so it's, i just thought i'd throw that out there for all right that's very good it, it just shows you how many problems are created when you start going down this path and right. you know it's interesting when we talked about this gap theory so this you know, going back you know there's a suggestion that between you know, verse one and verse two of Genesis chapter one, there's this huge gap of time. And, you know, so when you think about, well, is that plausible? Well, I mean, when you look at the entire chapter of Genesis, you know, Genesis one, it all flows very well. Certainly there's a natural flow from verse one to two. And, you know, if you think about it, if there was this gap, surely God would have revealed this gap to us and his desire to let things continue to evolve. I mean, that's important information. Why wouldn't he want man to know that and understand that? Uh, you know, passage that we like to refer to once in a while, Deuteronomy 29, 29, where it talks about the secret things belong to the Lord our God. It goes on to say, but those things which are revealed belong to, to us and our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. So one thing that God did through the gospel was he made sure that man understood his origin, that he was the one who created everything. And as we talked about in the previous section, that his works were finished after day six, and that is why he rested on day seven. So going back to your previous point, Jeff, you would have to argue, well, he didn't really mean it wasn't really finished. He didn't give us the full explanation. Well, then why would he say it was finished? Why would he rest if he wasn't truly finished or creation wasn't truly finished? And so, you know, when you think about it, um, there, there's just nothing that would suggest this, right? And so, you know, when you think about which explanation best fits, I think we're, we're really starting to see more and more the biblical account of creation or what we might call young earth creationism is the most plausible of all these theories that are put forth. And in fact, you kind of alluded to this, Jeff, but if I asked you, you know, if the Genesis narrative of creation and the global flood can't be trusted as factual history, well, what does that imply regarding the rest of the Bible that talks about those events as fact? Well, you wouldn't be able to trust it. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, and it may shock our audience to say, but Jesus was a creationist. <laughs> you know, Paul was a creationist. You know, did they believe in the literal, you know, six-day creation? Yes. Uh, Moses, et cetera. So if, if I can't believe, it, it's a snowball. If I, uh, it's rolling down a hill or a domino effect. If I cannot mm -hmm. believe the Genesis account, as a you know reasonable explanation. I mean, it's it's not a scientific textbook, obviously, but as a reasonable explanation or factual explanation of origins, then I really can't quote. Then I really can't believe Moses, who cites it. I can't believe Paul, 
who cites it. I can't believe Jesus who cites it. And so now the whole Bible just collapses. You know, if I can't accept the very beginning, I can't accept the whole thing. It all kind of stands or falls together. Yeah, and that's that's exactly why a you know a mixed theistic evolution theory just falls apart on so many levels. So I guess we want to shift gears now and talk a little bit about the geological record or the geologic record, right? And and what that reveals to us. Yeah, and again, here's another very deep subject um, because at least in Genesis one, when you know God was done, you know creating everything, you know it was pronounced as very good. And yet there is evidence, undeniable, that you start digging into the ground or you see where, for instance, uh, a highway construction people have carved out, you know, part of a ridge, for instance, to, you know, push a, push a road through. And you can see the different layers of sediment, et cetera. Grand Canyon, good example uh, of, another, you know, sort of a natural process, all these different layers, you know. Buried in the ground, all these fossilized remains, you know, countless, you know, plants and animals and, you know, the natural question is, okay, where did they all come from, right? And so that leads us into this uh, discussion about, as you said, the geologic record or what's called the geological column, you know, layers of rock, you know, uh, one on top of another with uh, all kinds of fossilized or mineralized remains, of, you know, plants and animals. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is around the planet, uh, there are some places where that those layers of, of sediment, if you will, um, don't exist at all. Uh, like up in Canada, you know, there's absolutely, you know, it's just bedrock. There's no layers of sediment at all. To my understanding, down in the uh, Texas Gulf Coast, where you have like up to 12 miles deep of these, you know, sediment deposits. Um, you know, on top of that, in terms of the geologic record, you know, you also have interesting things regarding what's called plate tectonics or continental drift, you know, deep fractures in the ocean's crust and these, you know, plates moving apart or smashing together. You get all kinds of earthquakes, uh, Pacific Rim of Fire, you know, all those kinds of things. And so you have these unusual processes that are currently going on and that historically through, again, looking through these sediments have gone on in the past, where did all this come from? Which leads us to at least three three models or three uh, explanations that have been offered. One, which in, in some ways has kind of been discredited, uh, is called uniformitarianism. I know that's a big word, uniformitarianism, that basically says the present is the key to the past. So any sort of ongoing current process uh, or rate of decay or deposits or whatever, um, if you extrapolate backwards, you know, that's what's accountable for what goes on in history. So, for instance, if I look at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and I see the Colorado River, you know, given the current you know flow of water, I could probably calculate, you know, some erosion um, effect that the river is doing on the underlying, you know, rock uh, that's at the, at the bed of the river. And I can use that current rate and then assume that rate is the same going back in time and say, ah, see, I have the Grand Canyon and it took, you know, X, X millions of years to be eroded based on the assumption that the current rate is the same as the ancient rate. Hmm. Uniformitarianism is, again, as I said, sometimes the, the, you'll hear the phrase, the present is the key to the, the past. 
And and honestly, within the scientific community, that particular model, you may find some people that promote it, but even in the scientific community, you know, people are saying, no, 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 we're we're starting to see evidence that in some ways the present is not the key to the past, that the existing processes we see going on now don't can't account for some of the things we see again in the geologic uh, record. So that leads us to another model uh, or an offering, uh, sometimes called catastrophism, which basically says the geologic record is preserving a record, if you will, of life on the planet that has evolved over millions of years, molecules to man, and that from time to time, there are occasional major disruptive cataclysmic uh, events sometimes local, like a volcano erupting, sometimes global, like, you know, allegedly the design, the dinosaurs were wiped out, you know, millions of years ago by a meteor, you know, that, that struck the planet and threw all the dust up into the atmosphere, resulting in like a, a nuclear winter, you know, for a long period of time. And, you know, 90% of the uh, creatures, you know, died off. Again, catastrophism, uh, but again, within an old earth kind of, of construct. Uh, the other third uh, model, if you will, uh, is catastrophism, right? But from a young earth perspective, that at least given what the Bible has to say, that there have been major, massive um, alterations of the planet in its history. Uh, two main events, if you will, and that these happen very quickly, not over millions of years, but over very short time periods. Uh, in fact, if you look at two that I know of, uh, one is in Genesis 1-9, where somehow you have this watery, muddy chaos, if you will, and God separates the land from the water. Well, that's a massive hydrological alteration of the planet, right? The other, which some people may not stop to think about, is the Genesis flood of Genesis chapter chapters six through nine, where, you know, some people might think, well, yeah, Genesis is going to rain for a while. Uh, no, you dig into the context that we're going to get into in, in a few moments. Uh, and it is a lot more involved than what a lot of people think. And in fact, some people may say, well, yeah, the quote unquote Genesis flood did occur, but it was local. In fact, some will say, well, yeah, that's what happened during the last ice age with lower, you know, more ice on the planet and lower ocean levels that the Black Sea over in uh, Europe, Eurasia, was dry or the Mediterranean was dry. And that as the ice age ended or one of the ice ages ended and the sea levels started to rise, that eventually the sea level overtopped the bridge, the land bridge, if you will, that's keeping the water out of the Mediterranean or out of the Black Sea, and it just rushed in. And that was the origin of the quote-unquote Genesis flood myth, <laughs> which I would assert is not a myth. The problem is, again, when you go into the Genesis account, you know, Genesis chapter 6, verse, you know, beginning with verse 5, give or take, and you read the account, this flood covered the entire planet, killing all land animals that breathed that it was a year i mean 40 days and 40 nights it rained yes but the flood waters persisted on the planet for an entire year 
and in fact, you see that reinforced by New Testament references. Matthew 24, where it talks about the ancient world and this you know, flood taking them all away. Uh, Luke 17, 27, the flood came and destroyed them all. Second uh, Peter 2, 5, the old world, if you will. A little bit later on, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 6, overflowed with water and perished. Global flood, no doubt. And again, if you also kind of uh, read into the account, there's these interesting little hints. And I'm going to, uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, for example. Fountains of the great deep being broken up. What does that mean? Well, if that is indeed a massive release of subterranean water, now I have this massive hydrological event that's you know tearing up you know rocks and causing massive amounts of erosion and tidal waves and massive earthquakes and potentially the triggering if i'm breaking up you know the crust now we're talking about plate tectonics potentially and continental drift and massive extinction and massive rapid burial of plants and animals and that's consistent with the geologic record now some people may say well now wait a minute Okay, water subterranean. Okay, yeah, but rainwater. Where, where, you know, where did all this water come from? Well, again, there's some tantalizing hints when you read some of the description about life before the flood and effects in life after the flood. Tantalizing little hints. Uh, Genesis chapter one verses six through eight, and Genesis chapter six, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter two verse six, and Genesis chapter seven verse eleven suggest, they don't require, but they suggest some kind of a large, some people call it a canopy or surrounding layer of water vapor, you know, around the earth that might have resulted in, you know, nice uniform or very mild temperatures, you know, before the flood, somewhat even heating, uh, mists, you know, watering the ground, uh, very rich plant life, which eventually could be the source of a lot of our fossil fuels that got buried in the flood, and that after the flood, you know, given this massive precipitation out of the sky, in addition to the water, you know, welling up from uh, below, wild temperature fluctuations, ice ages, violent weather, storms, diversification of ecosystems on the planet, rainforests and desert, which would encourage, you know, wildlife diversity, maybe even all this churning up of sediment and precipitation of this canopy and increased allowance of solar radiation, et cetera, and you know, uh, nuclear radiation within particles within the crust. Maybe that helps account for why human life went from a thousand-year average age to only a hundred. I don't know in terms of increased radiation and mutation. Anyway, lots of hints of massive, massive, massive changes between the world that then was and the world that we see today. Now, again, people may say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. If, if the earth was covered with water and, you know, current mountain ranges like the Rockies here in the United States or the Himalayas over in Asia are, you know, tens of thousands of feet high, and they were all covered, where'd the water go? And that, I think that's a legitimate question. 
what we see in the scriptures are again some some tantalizing little hints. Uh, Brian, if you will go over to Psalms 104 and read verses five through nine. Okay, here it says, "You who laid the foundations of the earth, so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled." At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Which, as I said, is a, is a very fascinating account. And you, know, you wish you had more detail, Brian. Uh, I really yeah. do. It does but, pique the interest the way it's it worded. Does. Like. Uh, and, and at least kind of hints at given some of the processes that I, I described, you know, massive upwelling from below of, of, of water that had been stored, et cetera, potentially triggering, you know, movement of crustal plates, et cetera. It's entirely plausible that before the flood, you know, land was perhaps more uniform, you know, not the wide extreme of, you know, sea level up to very high mountains, and that it could have taken less water to cover the land. That then was, don't assume, don't assume that the mountain ranges you see now existed back then. Okay, maybe the land was shallower. But more importantly, we are seeing evidence of, you know, massive mountain upwelling, like the Himalayas, right? Or, or even within the, you know, Rocky Mountain areas. That is the result of plate tectonics and continental drift and et cetera. So it's entirely plausible that those processes triggered by the flood would have raised up the mountains as well as lowering the depths of the ocean. And now I have an increased reservoir, if you will, for the water to run back into. And now that's yet another huge hydrologic event of the upwelling of the land and all this water rushing off could reasonably account for some, rapidly account for some of the structures we see. I mean, Grand Canyon is an example of that, where all this massive water, just inconceivable quantities of water, rushing off the continent, you know, carving off, you know, all these, you know, channels and gullies and, and whatever, in months, days. Uh, certainly, Mount St. Helens, when interrupted, uh, and some of the processes around Mount St. Helens around uh, 1980, you know, fairly sizable structures, uh, gullies and valleys, and you know, miniature Grand Canyons, if you will formed within hours and in the volcanic sedimentation, whatever, which I think kind of gives us a hint, if you will, uh, of what uh, the processes that could have been involved with the uh, global flood. And I think, again, coming back to the models, is it reasonable that the processes as described in the Bible could account for the geologic record and all these sediments and all these buried plants and animals to include, you know, massive coal deposits, et cetera. And I would submit the answer is yes. And again, this is a whole, again, a, a very deep subject. You know, we certainly would, uh, again, uh, encourage our listeners to go back to the website, you know, to some of the, the classroom material that I created, as well as some other articles uh, that we've got, you know, to study about the, the rapid formation of the geologic column, as well as the credibility of Noah's Ark, which a lot of people will, you know, laugh at in terms of putting, you know, all of the species, which the Bible doesn't use the term species, you know, 
into this little toy boat, which is often the way it's portrayed. But if, again, you look at the biblical account, the ark was huge. In fact, Brian, I think you've seen, um, or you know of people that have seen uh, models or replicas of it today. And it's absolutely mind-boggling how big the thing is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, in fact, there's uh, here in the United States, uh, right outside of Cincinnati, actually on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River, uh, there is a creation museum, which, uh, you know, if anybody's in that area, highly can, can highly recommend that because they actually have a working model, as you just described, Jeff, of how the flood could have created these valleys and so forth. And then they have, to your point about the ark within the creation museum itself, uh, what they feel is a scale replica section of the ark that you can walk through and they, they show you once again, you know, with really solid evidence as to why it was probably constructed that way. And then that same company created actually an amusement park that's based on creation. And they there have a full scale, full size replica or, you know, what they consider to be what the ark would have most likely been like to carry all these animals and people and so forth. So anyhow, very fascinating and well-researched and presented. So highly recommend that. Well, and I think that's, I think you kind of indirectly make a key point. You know, we hear so much about evolution via the public school. And we made this point in our first part. We hear so much about evolution in the public schools, in TV shows, in natural history museums, etc. Uh, and for the most part, most people will say, oh, well, okay, I guess that must have been the way it is. And you you very rarely, very rarely hear the other side. It's almost like you have to go looking for it, right? Right. Um, but when you do go looking for it and you start digging into it, not only from a biblical perspective, but also from a scientific perspective, you you begin to realize there's a lot more to the story than what the quote-unquote scientific establishment would have you believe as the dominant scientific model. I might say dogma, <laughs> because there is some faith involved there, as, as we've been mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. It's very good information. I appreciate you bringing all these passages in, because ultimately what you read and what you referenced in the Bible really helps to explain uh, and provide a reasonable explanation to you know what what's occurred here and so uh, certainly as you pointed out encourage everybody to dig in deeper to that uh, because it's just interesting number one but number two it, it also helps certainly when you're discussing it you're thinking about it and you're deciding in your own mind what's the most plausible all right jeff well that wraps it for this episode for our listeners we will have one more episode to finish up this series and next time we're going to talk about dating methods. So ancient life, how do scientists date and estimate how old something is? We'll talk about something called carbon-14 dating. Then we'll move and talk about the fossil record and dinosaurs and man and what we can learn from that. And then uh, we'll also talk about what does the Bible teach in contrast to what men's theories are. And then we'll finish up by answering a couple Bible questions that have been submitted on this topic. So please join us for our final episode in this series. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, 
you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.